Well, I read on the internet the other day that last weekend it was about 95 degrees here, and they said it was the, the warmest day you ever had in the month of May. I read it on the internet, so it must be true. Something like 95, right? And, and today it's like 65. So uh, next weekend, bring your winter coats because we might be looking at 35, perhaps. Well, my name is Steve Larson, and I'm here uh, several times a year on the weekends, and then I also help to lead the church planting ministry around here. A couple weekends ago, I had the opportunity to attend the church in which I grew up, and it was also the church where my wife Shelly and I spent about 13 years being part of, so we have a, a fairly long history there. I was invited to attend a luncheon afterward with their pastor, who's a, a good friend of mine, and also the, the elders of that church. It was quite an enjoyable gathering. The church is currently in a good season, but it wasn't always that way. My friend Randy, he's been the pastor there for about 30 years now. Uh, about 80 years ago, a 22-year-old young guy planted the church. He stayed there 50 years and then retired. Randy followed him after having been a, a youth pastor in Colorado, made the trek over to, to Michigan nearly 30 years ago. And it was kind of a, a bumpy ride for him, especially in the beginning. A couple years into his ministry, our congregation was growing and we're looking to relocate. The plan was to purchase some property uh, a few miles away and construct a new facility. People were quite enthused, but not everyone felt that way. We needed to have a, a congregational vote in order to purchase the land and relocate. Disgruntled people, those against the move, started recruiting others to vote no and defeat the plan. People who hadn't been near the church in years but were still in the database, they showed up so they could vote no. One Sunday evening following the vote, the congregation gathered to hear the results and we all formed a circle in the auditorium. We joined hands together. And when it was announced that the relocation project had been turned down, those who voted no started celebrating quite loudly. As a 20-something follower of Jesus, when that happened, I remembered how embarrassed I felt to be part of that church. <laughs> Long-time leaders who had talked about the importance of reaching people for Christ had recruited others so that the church wouldn't have to change. They were content to keep it more like a club than being on mission for God. And it was painful to be part of such a thing. As a result, families left the church, factions were formed, Gossip prevailed, and the enemy won yet another battle during that season. My home congregation suffered significantly for quite some time after that. We sometimes wonder why the church at large is not so effective. Well, it's because of episodes like the ones my family experiences as we attempted making a difference for Christ. The light of that congregation barely flickered in our community. Neighbors thought, if that's what Christianity looks like, I want no part of it. And for a season or two, my home congregation did more harm for Christ's cause than good. Well, over time, things began to change for the good. Eventually, they purchased that property. Eventually, they constructed a new facility. Eventually, they saw significant growth come once again. But it was a long process, and it was filled with challenges. A couple of weeks ago, at that luncheon, I thanked the current elders for their commitment to Christ's cause and encouraged them to, to keep on keeping on because what they're doing really matters. Not every church tells the story of how they continued growing 
over the long haul and how they stayed united during that time. Fortunately, that is something that's happened here at River Glen over the past 20 plus years. With a unified vision, River Glen has also gone on to help plant six new churches, have hopes to help plant four more new churches by the year 2020. We have a, a new site, River Glen, uh, Pewaukee will be launching this fall, and Dave Cole and his team have, have uh, gotten over 300 interested people that are looking forward to help advancing the mission of Christ in Pewaukee and beyond. I'd have to say that it's far more uncommon for, for, than common for churches to stay unified and healthy for long periods of time. Why is that? Why are there problems in churches and momentum often stalls and, and people get upset with one another? What's the deal? Well, churches dealing with problems goes back a couple of centuries. The New Testament church in Corinth, those people were suing each other. The church written about in the book of Galatians, according to the Apostle Paul, they were biting and devouring each other. At the church in Philippi, Paul pleaded with a couple of women just to try to get along. And the essence of the problems? Simply selfishness. Selfishness. About 2,000 years ago, James, one of Jesus' brothers, wrote a letter to some early followers of Christ, some early Christians. There was a lot of persecution going on. Many people had been run out of town and gone into hiding. These people needed to hear some words that could, could help them. They needed to weather that storm of persecution. They needed some insights on how to live during those challenging times. And that's when James wrote his letter. It's one of the most practical books in the Bible. James deals with a lot of different issues in order to help the reader strengthen his or her faith. And James wanted to see people live with an electric kind of faith, one that's really alive, not one that recruits others to extinguish the light of Christ, but one that fans the flame. We've been looking at James' book over the past few weeks in this series that we're calling Electric Faith. In the first chapter of his book, James said, there's a purpose to our problems that can help to make us stronger. In chapter 2, he, he said that, that our works, our actions on the outside, reveal the kind of faith that we have on the inside. In chapter 3, he said that our words drive our lives. Maybe you were here last weekend and you received a tongue depressor from Ben when you, when you walked in here. He, ben challenged you to take the, the, that tongue depressor and pay more attention to the power of your words during this past week. In chapter 4 of James' book, he begins by realizing that conflict happens. It happens with all people, church people included, doesn't it? Wherever you have people, there are going to be some problems. And James writes his book to followers of Christ. And he says right away in verse 1 of chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, why in the world are you recruiting people to vote no? The example I gave you about my, my home church might have been a, a bit on the extreme side for, for some of you, but, but fights and quarrels happen, don't they? Anybody going through a fight or a quarrel right now? Maybe it's with a spouse or a son or a daughter, perhaps an in-law. Maybe there's a colleague at work that drives you crazy or your neighbor is, is nearly impossible to get along with and you're even thinking about moving. I mean, what's the, the root of these kinds of problems? 
Well, James says that the fights and quarrels come as a result of our selfish desires that battle within. Selfish desires. When selfishness pervades, troubles invade. You you want something, but don't get it. You don't get your way. You become jealous over what others have and, and end up fighting trying to obtain it. Jealousy starts growing and it leads to discontentment, discord, and and division. I was happy about my house until I saw yours. I was pretty content with my bonus until I heard about yours. My vacation to Florida was great until I heard about your trip to England. I thought I was happy until I saw your pictures plastered all over Facebook. And now I'm jealous and even a little angry. I want what you have. This causes a lot of conflict. Does that happen with you? Or am I the only one here today that's willing to tell the truth? (laughs) I have a friend that was on a church staff with me about 20 years ago. We started a church together. We went through some tough times together. Uh, In the early days of the church, my friend even took a side job to help pay the the family bills, help make ends meet. He was quite good with technology, and he wrote some software helping our church function more efficiently. Well, a few years later, he wanted to make a go of it with his software and left our church staff. He wanted to start his own company. Well, I even encouraged him to take the leap. Perhaps he could help impact more churches. And over the years, we'd see each other from time to time, and I regularly supported him along the way, gave him an idea or two. Eventually, someone wanted to to purchase his business, and he was telling me about it, asking me what I thought. And I remember saying, if they're hungry, throw out a a really high number and see what they say. So he threw out a really high number, and they said yes. He sold his business. Now, I've been legitimately happy for him most of the time. He and his wife, they they went on a, a worldwide cruise for several months. His life changed dramatically. It's been more than a couple of years now, and he's still thinking about what to do next, but but there's not really a hurry. He doesn't even have to work again if that's the decision he makes. And when I'm having a a tough week, and I see that he and his wife are, are renting a house in Italy for a month, and I'm renting a DVD for the night, when that happens, I'd be lying if I said I was really happy for him right then. What causes this tension or inner turmoil? James says it stems from selfish desires that battle within me. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You want something, but don't get what the other person has. So, so what or, or who is it for you? Is there something or, or someone that just stirs you up? You attend the, the parade of homes and then go back to your own place and you're less than thrilled. Your neighbor's yard always looks like it's ready for the magazine cover on Home and Garden front page and, and you're battling just to keep the dandelions down. Maybe somebody's appearance is what gets you. <laughs> I see this on the screen For some of you, if you're under 30, you would say that's a hashtag sign, right? Now, if you're a little north of 30, you might say that's a a number sign, like I see a a number sign usually. 
The number of deals a person made stirs you up. The number of acres another person has might bring out the worst in you. The number of years or, or, or months that, that your buddy has before he retires just creates a little jealousy within you. The number that's in their 401k versus the number that's in your 401k prompts green eyes of envy to open widely once again. It's a number on a sheet that has no bearing on our life whatsoever, but it can mess with you. James says that this comes from the desires that battle within us. Desire isn't a bad thing. There are healthy desires in life. The problems come, the quarrels, the anger, the jealousy, the coveting comes when the desires become untamed and are allowed to start running rampant. So what's the remedy for this situation? What do we do about it? Well, the first thing is that we have to bring God into this area of desire. Bring God into the picture. And when God isn't in the picture, you're just going to be frustrated. And frustration often leads toward anger. Making a, a conscious decision as to who is going to drive my life is a significant call. Some of us think, it's my time, it's, it's my money or my life, and I'm going to live it my way. I have my rights. Well, that might work okay for you in the short run, but over, over time, if you're honest, how has that worked out for you really? How do you view your relationship with God? Sometimes I view my life as, as a, a pie with all these different slices in it. I have a couple of slices for work and a couple of slices for, for sleep because both of those take up a fair amount of time. That leaves just a few slices left. And if I put my relationships in there, I, I'm married. I have a, a daughter, a son, a daughter-in-law. I have a little grandson now. Throw in a, a hobby or two. I'm involved in, in my church back in Michigan. We, we host and lead a small group. And if these all take up a, a slice or two, that's my pie. And I'm afraid that a fair number of us think about our pie and we give God a slice. That's faulty thinking. If God only has a slice of the pie, he's getting shortchanged and the rest of our world gets out of whack. In reality, the whole pie belongs to God. Each slice is a part of my life in an area which I'm trying to honor him. Is that the way that you view it too? James says in chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourself to God. And this word for, for submit is a military term that means to, to get into proper rank. When a private acts like a general, there's going to be some trouble. Instead, when you give God the reins, you'll be far better off over the long haul. An example in Scripture of someone who was doing this right was the Apostle Paul. He was going down the wrong track in his life for quite some time, and then he made a complete 180, started following Jesus. He'd been to all the right schools, had the right pedicure. Pedicure, I don't know if Paul had pedicures or not, but he had the right pedigree. But Paul didn't let that kind of stuff interfere with his thinking, did he? In the book of Philippians, Paul wrote that he was doing well in this area. He said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, I know what it's like to be in need, and I know what it's like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The answer? Jesus Christ directed his life. Jesus led the way, and Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. He no longer did it on his own. Christ gave him the ability, the strength, 
to, to tame that desire monster. King David wrote in Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, pursue God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Around here, beginning this weekend, we're offering these brand new summer small group series where you can have others in your corner helping you in your journey with God, in your relationship with him. When God leads the way, he helps change those desires. When you decide to do your own thing, it brings on difficulties. But when God leads the way, when he's the first part of the equation, those quarrels, those arguments, those envious, jealous-laced thoughts, they don't win the day anymore. Let God lead the way. Well, what else helps us to remedy this situation? Well, learn to say the word enough. Enough. What if we said, what I have is enough? I have a, a Zillow app on my phone. I, I use it a lot. My house isn't even on the market. But I like seeing what else is out there. And sometimes I'll even point out a house to my wife and we'll go drive by it or something like that if it looks good. And I always seem to come to the same conclusion. I, I like where we live. I, I like our neighbors, like our neighborhood. Our place works well for us and, and it is enough. And the older I get, the more I realize that things don't have the ability to make me happy. I'm kind of proud of my paid-for Silverado truck that has over 200,000 miles on it, hoping to see 250 or more, perhaps. Uh, things just don't have the ability, at least not a sustaining ability, to make and keep us happy. When we compare what we have with others, there will always be someone else that has more than you, and you'll never be happy. And there will always be someone else that has more, and there will always be someone else that has less, and that will create a, a pride problem in your life. It's a lose-lose proposition. So can you start saying the word enough? What I have right now is enough. My car is enough. My house is enough. I'm choosing to be content with what I have. Commercials tell us that we don't have enough. You need better wheels or a fancier vacation or, or the newest phone. Let's try and gain some perspective. There are a little more than 7 billion people living on this planet. And if the population of the world were represented by, by 100 people, if a little over 7 billion people were condensed into 100 people, 85 of those people would be living in substandard housing. 85 out of 100 would not have running water or electricity. You don't have to, to raise your hand, but how many of you have water and electricity where you live? If the population of the world were condensed into 100 people, 80 of those 100 would be hungry. Not starving, but not enough to, to eat to sustain a healthy way of life. Six of the 100 would live in the United States. And those six they would account for over half of the world's wealth. Compared to the rest of the world, most of us are pretty well off. And if you own a car, you're in the top 2% of the world's wealthiest people. If you have a household income of at least $32,000, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. And if you're there and are still always wanting more, perhaps it's time to start sincerely saying, what I have is enough. You know who did this well in Scripture? Do you remember the name Mary Magdalene from the Bible? 
Jesus had healed her. She was a faithful follower of his. About a week before Christ's crucifixion, she attended a, a dinner party where Jesus was present. And at that party, she anointed his feet with this very expensive perfume. Mary was not a rich person. She had very little. Yet she was so devoted to Jesus and his mission that she open-handedly gave something that some believe was worth a year's wages. It was an extravagant gift. And the takeaway for me is that when, when people are generous with their resources, they don't let the trappings of accumulating stuff start hardening their hearts. Instead, a generous heart like Mary Magdalene's leads the way toward contentment. It's much easier to then say, what I have is enough. How are you doing with that? When we regularly release our resources, when we're generous toward God and others, discontentment starts to dissolve. Selfish desires are diminished. What I have is enough. Well, how else can we combat this inner turmoil that, that James talks about? We put God first. We, we learn to say enough and live with humility. <laughs> live with humility. God is not neutral when it comes to pride. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God actually works against those who are arrogant. He opposes them. Well, how does being humble help battle this untamed desire that leads you to, to fight and quarrel? Well, humility says, God, all that I have comes from you, and I'm so grateful for it. It says, Lord, you're the source of everything I have. You gave me life and strength, my abilities. You gave me intelligence. Everything I have came from you, and I'm just so grateful if I get jealous and start bickering with others, it's like I'm saying to God, you blew it, God. What I have is not enough. I deserve more. You messed up. It's kind of a slap in the face toward God. And James says God opposes that kind of mindset, but he gives grace to those who are humble. About a decade ago, the economy where we lived in southeastern Michigan took quite a nosedive. I mean, we lost something like 500,000 jobs and nearly a million people who left our state by the time it all shook out. And one of the downsides of that experience was that our family business, one that I'd been involved in with my dad, that collapsed as well. And from a financial point of view, we both had to start all over. Dad was in his early 70s, and that was very tough to do, but he did it. We were in our 40s, and, and while it was difficult on our family, we still had enough time on our side so that we, we thought we could recover in an okay manner. And since we lost just about everything, our family moved from the home that we had owned into a rental house, and we lived there in that rental house for about five years. And for me, that was one way to be humbled quite quickly. Eventually, over time, we made some progress financially, and we were able to, to construct a, a new home. When our house was under construction, I, I remember walking through and noticing that the switch for the garbage disposal was located in, in kind of an odd place. You had to take a couple of extra steps away from the sink in order to, to reach the garbage disposal switch. <laughs> I mentioned something to the, the builder, but, but it's going to be too expensive to move, so we just left it in place. 
And Shelley suggested that, that we use that garbage disposal switch as, as kind of a modern-day memorial. Her thought was that every time we had to take a couple of additional steps to turn on the garbage disposal to offer a, a quick prayer of thanksgiving to God and, and thank Him for allowing us to get back on our feet and for providing for us. Well, I thought her suggestion was brilliant. In fact, it's been far more than a suggestion. We've been in our home for more than five years now. And I'd say that at least once per week, I'm flipping that switch to the garbage disposal and at the same time saying something like, God, you've been so good to us. Thanks for allowing us to, to build this home and for giving us such a, a great place to live. And quite frankly, had the garbage disposal switch been, been placed in, in a more convenient location, <laughs> my GQ, my gratitude quotient would probably be a lot lower than it is. By regularly expressing thanks to God, that can help keep pride at bay. An attitude of gratitude is one that helps to usher in humility. We learned that modern-day altar or memorial idea from an Old Testament hero named Moses. The book of Numbers in the Old Testament says that Moses, in chapter 12, verse 3, was a very humble man, in fact, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. You know that about Moses? There was a time when Moses was leading the children of Israel. In Exodus chapter 18, they'd already crossed the Red Sea. They'd been delivered from the hand of the evil Pharaoh. And you think that Moses would be highly regarded by the people at that point. But they had set up their camp, and every day these selfish desires were emerging and, and conflict abounded. Moses was trying to settle the skirmishes. From morning until nighttime, he was trying to keep the peace. And One day he was telling his father-in-law about all of his troubles he was encountering when he had finished telling his father-in-law about his troubles, rather than hearing something like, wow, Moses, you're really working hard. Way to go. Instead, Moses' father-in-law simply said, Moses, the thing you're doing is not good. I might have been a bit put off if my father-in-law had responded that way. Instead, Moses listened. He, he reorganized his approach to, to solving all these disputes. His father-in-law gave Moses some, some great advice, and Moses was humble enough to listen and then do something about it. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be known for having the humility of Moses. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 4 shows us that allowing our desires to go unchecked and leading toward fights and quarrels, it impedes what could be an electric kind of faith. And if we want to make a, a difference in our lives, in our faith journey, God needs to be leading the way. It's quite helpful to recognize that what we have is enough. And living with humility can also make quite the impact. My wife and I, we have a, a walk-in closet off our bedroom, and I was recently hanging up some of my clothes, and I noticed that the broom she usually had on her side of the closet was now on my side. Well, it's, it's a broom that we use to sweep the master bathroom, and, and as a good husband, I thought it better be put back in a place where it belongs. I mean, everything needs to be put in its, its proper place, right? So I put it back on her side. <laughs> Didn't say anything about it. A couple days later, that broom was back on my side. I saw that, and I, I put it back on her side. Still didn't say anything at that time. Well, the next day, she was putting something away in the closet, and she started putting that broom back on my side, and she said something about it, and we decided to have a conversation about the broom in the closet. 
And I was joking with her and reminded her that the broom has always been on her side of the closet, not mine. After all, my side of the closet isn't really equal to a side anyway. It's more like a section. And that could have led to an entirely different conversation. But, but, but Shelly, she just felt like there wasn't room for the broom on her side of the closet anymore. Well, in earlier days of marriage, broomgate was the kind of thing that could heighten into a quarrel or even more, and I may have done whatever it took to win. And I know it wasn't really about the, the broom in the closet, right? It's about who gets their way. And, and rather than let this conversation escalate into a potential problem, I just kind of laughed it off. And Shelly's with me uh, this weekend, and guess where the broom was before we left to come here yesterday? <laughs> well, it's on my side of the closet. I mean, I've learned a thing or two over 30-some years of marriage, you know, how to, how to work things out. Now, I don't know where you are in your relationships today. You may be on the cusp of a fight or a quarrel. You may be in the middle of one. There may be someone in your life that you haven't spoken to in years. And friends, when God directs your life, when he leads the way, it has to be a priority to get worked out. Maybe you've been trying to accumulate some more stuff recently. And eventually, you'll come to the realization that stuff doesn't fulfill. Can you make a decision today that it's time to say, I have enough, where you live a bit more simply? And when you do, contentment arrives and your relationships improve along the way. You won't regret it. Has pride been rearing its head in your world too much lately? Can you describe yourself as, as coachable? Or has that been out of the question for quite some time? And maybe it's time to follow the same path that Jesus took. Scripture says that, that Jesus emptied himself. He, he humbled himself. And because of his love for you and for me, he was humble enough to die for us so that we could have eternal life, have that hope for eternity. And if Jesus was humble enough to do something like that, what keeps you from swallowing your pride and stepping up in humility this weekend? It may be time when God leads the way. When enough is enough, when humility is embraced in the way that you live, you will have an electric kind of faith. It makes a huge difference in your own life. It makes a difference with others. And God is pleased. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the strong words of James, where James identifies some issues that are going on even 2,000 years ago, that continue on today. Father, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the insight that we, we have. Uh, thank you for the way that, that you forgive us and, and kind of lead the way so that we can do the same. Would you give us the humility to, to recognize that you need to lead the way? Would you give us a, a less of desire for stuff and more desire for you? Father, thank you for the the vision that our faith can be electric and it can make a difference for others and it makes you pleased and it's in jesus name we pray amen